1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren and Dr. Catherine. But we're going to start the show off today with a great interview. Oh, Jeff, you've decided to come back.
0: I've always been here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're behind schedule because the doctors went over time, but we have an interview for you today with a great lady, Helen Chersky, from the University of College London, which I'm going to play for you momentarily. And then we will have a guest from the Baker Hart Institute and some news at the end of the show but we're going to start off with this interview i hope you enjoy it it's a long one but a good one folks so uh listen to this three triple r i'm dr shane and we're joined now by dr helen chersky Helen is a physicist oceanographer and broadcaster she currently works in the department of mechanical engineering at the university college london and is a science presenter for the bbc helen welcome to triple r thanks for
2: having me on
1: now, um, you're probably the first person I've interviewed, I think, who's both a physicist and an oceanographer. Can you give us a bit of the backstory on how you got into these two professions collectively?
2: Well, they're not actually that different. What I really do is ocean physics. It's a sort of, I'm a physicist by training, that's the way I think about the world, but I uh, found myself studying things in the ocean, and then I started to go to sea for that research, and... And, uh, apparently once you start going to see, you're an oceanographer because no one's really got a degree in oceanography. Most people doing this sort of stuff are, you know, they're chemists and mathematicians and physicists and they, they don't, they didn't, none of them labeled themselves like that to begin with. Uh, and they just sort of started working on the ocean. And Then people say, Oh, you're an oceanographer. So, so I'm, I'm one of that crowd. I became an oceanographer by the back door, but I'm really a physicist. I, I study, uh, and the bit, the bit of physics that interests me is the, physics of the the everyday world, you know, I did all my, you know, quantum mechanics and cosmology lectures and, and that was all cool. But really, I wanted to study stuff I could touch and see and play with. And that that's what took me towards the ocean. And I get to go to sea as well. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good combination.
1: Yeah, that's kind of fun. Now, when you say physics of the everyday world, is there physics that's not of the everyday world as you would describe it?
2: Well, there's physics that we can't see the consequences of in everyday life. So I think, I think of it as, um, uh, you've got, you've got scientific listeners. They, I'm sure they won't mind a, a, a description of a graph that's got time and size on the axis. And you've got very small, very, very fast things down in one, then bo- one, you know, the bottom left corner and very large, very, very slow things in the top right corner. Uh, and that's cosmology. And then down in the, the small side, you've got quantum mechanics. And then in the middle is all this classical physics, which is really interesting. That's what's running the everyday world. Uh, and, and what's interesting in the middle is that it's how all those different physical laws work together, thermodynamics and things like surface tension and um, Newton's laws of motion. Um, so, but the things like quantum mechanics, you know, exactly what a quark is. That doesn't have, I mean, you can do quite a lot of things in the world without knowing exactly what a quark is. And the same goes for the beginning and end of the universe. It's not that we shouldn't be finding out about it. It's just that quite honestly, if you want to get to school on time, you don't really need to know. And, and so they're almost, they're, they're, they're important things for humans to find out about. But I think for a lot of people, they're closer to philosophy. You know, you can have these theories. You can use the evidence to make deductions. But when it comes to making a practical difference, it's, it makes, it might make a difference to your view on the world. And that's an important thing, but it doesn't actually help you get things done. And I, I often think that when we talk about physics, we, we sort of leave out because we talk about, you know, the weirdness of quantum mechanics and the vastness of the universe. We kind of leave out all those people who are just a little bit more pragmatic. You know, they've got stuff to be doing. Um, and, and, and it's, you want to, it, physics is also useful. It's not just this kind of philosophical, ethereal, well, we're going to, you know, consider the universe it's it actually does useful things in the real world and i don't think we talk about that enough so and that's the stuff i like to play with i'm very practical and hands-on my favorite bit of the whole thing is building experiments i mean that the my the the good day for me is the day when you walk into the lab on the first day of a project and basically go right I've got to do a thing, I have no idea how to do it, and here I've, I've got some tools, what am I going to do? And that that's the fun bit for me, it's its using the tools of the physical world to, to get a bits of information.
1: Yeah, when I spent a lot more time in the lab as a physicist myself, I used to think of that as basically Lego for grown-ups.
2: Yeah, it is, and I've, I have got Lego, there's a bucket of it over there, Uh <laughs> down to my right and uh, and i'm not ashamed um i i think everyone should have
1: lego yeah it's the whole reason for having kids in my view it's, you know you get to play with lego all over again without excuses um let's let's move on to your specific work with regards to the ocean and and so forth i think there's a much greater appreciation now um generally in the community that there's an interaction between the atmosphere and the oceans but you look specifically at ocean bubbles why why is this important? What got you into looking at ocean bubbles?
2: Um, well, on the first point, I think that the planet, I think of Earth as one of our three life support systems and it, the other two being our body and, and the infrastructure of our civilization. And, and it's, it's got five components. It's an engine with five components, the atmosphere, the oceans, biology, rocks and the ice. And so what you need to know to understand how the whole engine works is to understand how those components work together. And so, the atmosphere and the ocean, these two huge reservoirs um, that that hold things and move things around, and we in order to understand the bigger engine, you need to know what how things flow between those two things. So the surface of the ocean' is really important it 's really thin, but if, if anything's going to go from the atmosphere to the ocean or back the other way it 's got to go through that barrier and so the bubbles are important because they they change that surface quite a lot. The, bu- the sorts of bubbles I study are the underwater bubbles, so when a wave breaks, you get a big plume of bubbles trapped under the water. And and those bubbles hang around for some period of time. It depends on the bubble. They can last for quite a lot. Some of them are up back to the surface and gone within a second. Some of them are hanging around in the ocean for 10 minutes, maybe even an hour. Um, and the reason that they matter is firstly that they're like little pockets of the atmosphere carried down into the ocean. So if you're interested in gases coming and going, and this pro- you can think of the process as the ocean breathing, gas exchange across the surface, bubbles are really important because they're vastly increasing the surface area. And they're also doing something which is almost more important, which is that if you have a bubble and you push it down, you know, it, it sort of moves down in the water column, it then gets squeezed by the weight of water around it. So the gases inside it are much more likely to dissolve out into the ocean. And then the other thing, so, so, and also you get gases from the ocean that go into bubbles that then get transported back to the surface. And then the other thing is that when a bubble rises to the surface and it, it becomes part of a foam layer, for example, at the top, so it sort of sits at the surface, it doesn't, it doesn't, That's not the end of the story. So when you hold a fizzy drink up under your nose, for example, you can feel it spitting tiny particles up your nose. And any bubble, as it bursts, will also spit tiny particles upwards. Um, And in the case of the ones on the ocean, if the water contains, uh, obviously contains salt, but it may well also contain organic material and bits of cell, and they get spat up into the atmosphere. And these little particles that drift around the atmosphere are really important for how light travels through the atmosphere and how clouds form. And so you start with this one little thing, which is a very tiny, one little bubble. You know, who cares about a bubble? But then when you've got so many bubbles in the ocean surface, especially in big storms, they're basically acting as vehicles across the surface. Um, they're carrying other materials across the surface. And that's the sort of thing that makes a planetary engine tick. So that's why we study it.
1: Mm. Now, now, talk us through what what 's involved in studying these bubbles, because I can imagine there 's a part of this that could be done in the laboratory under controlled conditions, but also obviously you 're going out into the oceans themselves and studying this in, in that environment so what what parts are done where and what sort of things are you trying to find
2: Well, the problem with uh, any ocean science is that we are data poor uh, that 's because it 's very hard to get out into the middle of the ocean and you need a big ship. Um, you know sometimes' there's this perception that you can just google things you just google some information and that's not how it works. that information has to come from somewhere and in the case of oceanography there there really isn't any substitute if you want to make very precise measurements uh, you really have to go out into the ocean and basically dangle things over the side on bits of string i mean it it, it pretty much still is that um, even though we've got little you know lots of little underwater robots that can take themselves off now so um just the bits that i study in the at sea are the real physical phenomena. like just what happens seafarers have looked out at stormy seas for centuries um but no one's ever been able to see just one meter underneath the surface and that's the bit i'm interested in so getting at it that's that's the reason for going to sea and then the lab work uh it does it is pretty much half and half um shipwork and lab work the lab work tends to involve understanding the the sort of fundamental bubble physics you can recreate bits of the ocean in a tank in the lab so you get the salinity right you get the temperature right you know you put surfactants in there whatever it is and then you can you can watch what the bubbles are doing in a much more controlled environment and you think that you know how is anyone in 2017 sitting in a lab watching bubbles break apart in turbulence you know how can that possibly be necessary And yet the thing is, we don't have very good models for how bubbles break apart in turbulence. Um, And that's how these bubbles under breaking waves are formed. They're they're big bubbles that break into smaller ones, and they break into smaller ones. That's a large, most of the bigger bubbles are formed that way. Um, And we don't understand that process because it's complicated. So it it is one of those, so it's worth, you know, you need to do the lab experiments to get a handle on the basic physics, and you need the ocean experiments to to see what the real world's up to. And then you use theory and modelling to join those two up to, to make sure you've got a complete understanding of the system. But fundamentally it's, you know, we're always short of data. We could always spend more time at sea. Um, because you never have the perfect measuring conditions. Something always goes wrong. However good you are at the job, the ocean will throw the unexpected at you. So, so you need the lab stuff as well to, to really make sense of the world. So it's good. It's varied. You know, I like that. Mm. Um, it's all very varied.
1: Yeah. Now, in terms of, I mean, obviously you're you're looking at bubbles in water, but there's there's a variety of ways you could potentially do this. I mean, you could slow things down by looking at bubbles in oils or other more viscous fluids. Is there a particular reason why you you look at the bubbles in water? Is it? I mean, obviously that's the area we want to study, but you know, are there possibilities for doing this in other ways?
2: So you actually touch on something very interesting there because there have been a lot of mathematical models uh, built. So at the moment, we we do not, there is no mathematical uh, modelling, sort of finite, finite element style modelling programme that can absolutely capture all the physics, even of a rising bubble. Never mm. mind one doing anything. But lots of theorists have um, made mathematical models of bubbles and they choose bubbles in viscous liquids and the reason that they choose bubbles in viscous liquids really annoys people like me is that viscous liquids are easy um Mm. because you don't get the same amount of turbulence you don't get these little weights generated behind the bubbles you have a nice simple solution so there's so many papers written on viscous bubbles and they are useless when it comes to the actual practical world they're very important for you know, developing mathematical tools, testing, understanding, all that kind of thing. But when it comes to actually what's going on in the real world, you know, shampoo is not that common. The bubbles in shampoo are not that significant. So you basically have to do it. Uh, you have to do your experiments in water because you need a low viscosity fluid because that's where you get the interesting behavior. Um, bubbles fragment. Bubbles in viscous fluids don't fragment in the way that bubbles in um water would do uh sort of regime of physics is completely different so basically the the real world is the complicated place Mm. Uh, and it just says that um because of the because of the way water is and and the sort of temperature and viscosity and surface tension of it all of these things matter so quite often in fluid dynamics um you pick out one or two things that matter most you know you can focus on density changes you can focus on viscosity changes in the little bit where the bubbles are, where these bubbles are, it just so happens that everything matters. You need to know about surface tension. You need to know about viscosity. You need to know about density. So you've basically got to do the real thing because anything else is missing out some of the fundamental physics. Mm. I wish there was a easier way to do it, but um, but part of what makes bubbles so beautiful and interesting and, and fascinating to watch is that they they're on the edge of so many things. All these little different effects matter, and yeah. you have to include.
1: Them. Yeah, and and what sort of things? I mean, I know the work is in progress, but what sort of things have you determined so far with with the experiments that you've done?
2: So, a lot of my experiments have involved the sound that bubbles make, and um, because bubbles bubbles so water is uh, very hard to squish should we say it, we say it's not compressible which means that if you push on it it doesn't really get any smaller uh, and the most extreme example of that is possibly at the bottom of the ocean even in, you know the deep in the mariana's trench 10 kilo- under 10 kilometers of water even though that water has the weight of 10 kilometers of water imagine looking up at a jet plane in the sky the ocean goes down the same distance um all of that water s- squeezing on the water right at the bottom. And it's basically exactly the same density as the water at the top. It's almost impossible to squish it. But when you put bubbles into water, bubbles are very squishy. And so uh, it, when you have a sound wave, for example, that travels through water, what sound is, is compression and rarefaction. Um, and in the, you know in non-bubbly water the water is very stiff It, it doesn't squish as soon as you put bubbles in it does start to squish because the bubbles will be squeezed and so they respond so bubbly water responds very strongly to sound and bubbles um not only absorb sound but they also generate it at the moment of their formation so you can So the sorts of things I've done have looked at the mechanisms of sound generation when bubbles are formed um, and using acoustic methods and understanding the acoustics of bubbles to work out how many bubbles there are. So that's the sort of thing you can use in an experiment if you want to go to sea. You want to build an instrument and you want to say, well, how how do we know how many bubbles there are and how big they are? That's actually a hard question to answer. So some of the physics I've done has been that sort of thing. And then now... um, I've, i'm working on data from a i was on a ship recently and so we're understanding bubbles in storms and trying to map out what a bubble where a bubble goes underneath the breaking wave and, and then there's lab experiments looking at how bubbles break apart and join together um and what how they do it in different conditions so it's all it's sort of um it's lots of different things um, but they're all it's just like increasing knowledge about these quite fundamental processes but they you know it, it's tough if they were easy experiments to do they would have been done 50 years ago so we're still we're
1: still um, uh, chipping away at the coalface. Mm, sounds good. Now let's um, let's shift gear a bit towards um, science communication more generally, because you do a lot of this, obviously. And I'm not sure when exactly you find the, the time, but um, this is something at the moment. It seems to be a bit of an uphill battle at the moment for a lot of scientists with the public, especially around areas of climate and vaccinations and other things. How do you think the scientific community is doing? On, on the whole in terms of science communication, is it something that we need to ramp up quite substantially or are we doing well?
2: a really difficult issue because the, the fundamental equation, which has a bit of wiggle room but, but not very much, is that if you do more communication, you do less research. Mm. And there are only so many hours in the day. And for some types of research, you can talk about, you know, the public may well inform the research and make it better, especially if you're dealing with medical issues. You might well be able to, for example, design a device in a way that makes people much more likely to use it, for example. And, and so, so in some cases there is sort of interplay between, um, you know, it's genuine two-way feedback. But most of the time, if a scientist is, is talking in a school or talking, uh, to, in a public lecture, they are not in their lab writing papers. So, and you can argue this in a lot of different ways. Generally, I think scientists are getting much better at talking to other people about their science. Um, and that we're, our scientific systems are slowly catching up with this trade-off, which is that you will publish fewer papers. And you can argue that all sorts of other things will get done which are very valuable and which are just as good or better. But the currency of science is still scientific papers research produced and and i think even though individual researchers are convinced our system is only just catching up that, that that trade-off exists so scientists are getting better at talking i'm not convinced we're getting better at listening and that's the thing that is really relevant to the situation we find ourselves in now and especially there's been these i mean you know the anti-vaxxers have been around for years um but what you've the point which has been reached in many fields now is polarization the two sides just won't listen i think 10 years ago you'd have found you know a range of issues uh, and people would be somewhere along the line you know they might be in the middle they might be at the edge and now basically when you say what you put f- in some in some areas of science when you say what you think about a scientific issue what you're stating is who you are mm. you're not actually your opinion
0: on the
1: science
2: you're saying this
1: is my identity yeah and that's dangerous yeah it's the politicization in the way of of certain scientific areas isn't it i mean the you know you 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 almost um can link the, the the sort of right or the far right of the political system to not with climate change and the left with climate change and this actually has nothing to do with the the science of climate change itself Um, but, but people are defined now by those categorizations in a certain way, which seems odd.
2: But it's been going on for a long time. And I think that there is a route out and the route out is by focusing on values. You know, um, it's, it's listening, it's taking the time to have the conversations and listen and to say, well, actually, you know, um, let's not talk about whether or not you, you do or don't like, uh, you think coal fired power stations should be built instead of wind turbines. Let's talk about where the, energy that your children will use comes from and what are the best methods for getting at that and I, so i think that part of the listening issue is is in moving the debate to the places where it's not polarized where there isn't already a wall that says i am this sort of person and therefore of course i think this so what science what scientists can do is get better at moving the debate you know so well how you know how would you like to generate energy and what you know what be- what the ways are better the better to do it and um talking about values and sticking to the science. Because the other thing is that listening, people don't feel listened to. And scientists have been exceptionally bad at not listening. And in one sense, we've been, our community has not been helping itself. Because if you don't listen, the thing that people remember is that you didn't listen. They don't remember what you said. They remember that they weren't heard.
3: Mm.
2: And so sticking in with sharp sticks and, you know, poking things at people going, well, you're wrong and I've got the graph to prove it. That's not the point. We shouldn't let go of the data. We absolutely have data and we have evidence and and we have reasons for thinking that a lot of this evidence is very robust. And it's not that we should let go of that. It's just that we need a bit of dignity and a bit of patience um, when presenting that evidence to others. And we need to listen to why they are pointing fingers. Because they're not arguing with the data. I mean, Mm. there's two separate things. There's what science can has to say about the way that the world is and what society should do with that information. And they are completely separate. Mm. And the logical problem comes with people thinking that the science says we should do this. No. The science says if you don't want catastrophic climate change, then you need to reduce your carbon emissions. But it doesn't say... That you should reduce your carbon emissions. Yeah. That's a successful decision. So yeah. it's all very confusing. That the bit that scientists can do is by sh- you know shifting the debate and listening to people, and picking, standing up for the evidence respectfully. So it's a, it's a, it t- probably it all takes time. Mm. And you know, we we are struggling with the amounts with all these other pressures. You know, also the money is generally going down at the moment. There's all these other things we're supposed to do, and we've got to do this as well. You know, there's there's a, it's um. Science has basically been done on the cheap for years because the scientific, in universities, it's just assumed you have one researcher who does a thing. But we have, um, it doesn't work like that anymore. Science needs proper systems and proper collaboration and it needs the support to get these important things done. And we're just, you know, we're learning, but I think there is a way forward. There's mm. a positive way.
1: It, it seems to I mean, one, one of the things that I've noticed is there, there is a bit of a consistency for many scientists and not all to actually tell the story that they think should be told as opposed to the one that the general community actually wants to be hearing now that's not to say we just tell them what they want to hear but certainly telling it in a way that's accessible and relevant to them is something that we we often don't do and the, the data issue where the data is off especially in climate science the the data is often just pushed and pushed and pushed that Isn't actually that helpful? Uh, You you can give people more and more data as long as you want; it won't actually get you any further than where you started.
2: Well, there's another danger with with one of the other facets of this debate. You're right that just giving people what they want—you know, providing information in the form they want to hear—it's important. One of the important things about science is that quite a lot of the foundation of science is built on things that people don't know they want or they don't know they want yet. And we cannot choose, the difficulty comes, we cannot choose the science we do based on this is going to be popular and this isn't. Yes, there are big societal questions that need to be answered, but we also need to keep the foundations turning along because that's what—that's where the real innovation is going to come from, the things we didn't know that we're there to find out. And it does bother me that, um, you know, we, we want to use society's, most science is done with public funding, we want to use that money well, but we can't just say... We're only going to do the things that the public thinks they think they want because the foundations have so much to offer to those problems. that we need to we need to f- also fund the non sexy science, mm. is what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's that's more difficult to talk about because some subjects get talked about a lot. You know, if you're doing urban development, you know how you, how you design a city, people are all over that. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone wants to interact with that. If you're chipping away at the the genome of a fruit fly. And how this particular combination of um, proteins is expressed in a very specific environment—it's very that is very valuable research. We need to know how that works, but it's not something with immediate impact tomorrow. And you shouldn't dress it up as though it has. And and that's that's a difficult um, balance as well. You know. So, it, but I think, and all of this is is we have ways of dealing with it. We just have to actually approach the question, and, and people haven't asked the question up till now. And I just think we need to understand that there is nuance in what science can do, and what it can't do, what we expect from our scientists. And we should fundamentally scientists are human beings. And they need to remember that as much as everyone else needs to remember that, you know, we're all, I still, I've just been for a run. I still run around. I, I sort of do loads of sports. I read, I hang out with my friends, you know, I do all that. I'm still, I'm still a scientist, even though I do all these normal human things, um, and scientists are, are human, just like everyone else.
1: Yeah, we're human beings after all. Um, Helen, you're uh, rapidly approaching your trip out here to Australia in the next few days. Um, give us just a little bit on what you'll be doing while you're here. You'll be in Melbourne. You'll be in various cities. What's the plan?
2: The plan is the Cosmic Shambles tour, and it's um, what we have. What we're discovering about this is that. We know this is brilliant because we do it in the UK. Uh, Robin Ince has been leading the charge on this sort of show for years now. Um, And once you've seen it, it makes total sense. But until you've seen it, people don't really know what you're talking about. So the short version is that these are evenings of science and comedy and music, all themed-ish around science. They're evenings out for people who like to think and like to laugh and like to appreciate the beauty of... um, you know the the world that we live on um and they're little they're just full of stuff and they're full of surprising things and it's basically a cabaret of celebrating the world um you will if you come along to our shows you will learn things you will laugh at things you will um be blown away by the beauty of things and it will all happen in one evening and it's, and the thing, that's the thing I love about these shows. Uh, we do them in the UK, so the, the, the some of us that are coming out from, from the UK, um, the rest of the, um, the people joining us on the shows will be local to the cities we're visiting. And what it is, is a wonderful celebration of how varied the world is. All in one evening, and I'm not, I'm just picking things out of the air, this is not giving anything away. All in one evening, you know, you can hear about the mating habits of frogs, the universe, bits of music that have been inspired by uh, the atom, you know, just, you know, scientific, the misuse of scientific statistics, a comedy slot that's about how science relates to society. All of this variety exists as in our human society and all of this variety exists in the Cosmic shambles show. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going around these cities, basically sharing this view of the world that you don't have to be this one dimensional you know science this this is the way i'm i'm enthusiastic about science you just have to be human and love the variety of life and we will give you an evening of the variety of life um so i'm really, so we're doing five of these shows in uh, sydney melbourne oh six yeah sydney melbourne christchurch auckland wellington and perth and um they it's going to be brilliant come along even if it doesn't make any sense the message is: come along and bring your friends. And if you're interested in ideas, um, you will you will you will have a fabulous evening. So so that's what I'm doing, and it's really exciting to bring it to a new audience.
1: Yeah. Now we're going to put the links to the shows and and details up on our Facebook site and Twitter. But Helen, just before I let you go, um, where can people find you on the web and so forth?
2: Uh, so there's quite a lot of me on the web, which I occasionally remember when people ask me questions like that. So I have a website at helencheresky.net, which has uh, links to the writing I do. I've just written a book, Storm in a Teacup, um, lots of sort of online videos and interviews and things, and stuff about my science, and then the documentaries that I present on the BBC. So all of that, if you basically, if you Google Helen and Bubbles, you usually end up with me. My surname is pretty distinctive, but no one can ever remember how to spell it. It's not actually that hard. The Z just frightens people. Um, so Google Helen and Bubbles and you'll find me. And uh, yeah, the, the world of everyday science, that's my shtick. So if you're into um, understanding what a coffee stain can tell you about the world, uh, uh, that's probably the place. My website is probably the place to look.
1: Helen, thanks so much for talking to us today on Triple R, and we look forward to you being here in Melbourne.
0: Three... Triple...
1: Uh, you are listening to 3 Triple R, folks. She said to chop Dr. Lauren off then. <laughs> she was going to chat right into I'm the...
4: pretty used to that, Dr. Shane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what, chatting or being... Uh, <laughs> being cut top, top. off. Oh,
4: right. <laughs> <laughs> By they, everyone that knows me. <laughs>
1: they kind of go together, if you <laughs> notice that. <laughs> yes. In the studio now, we have Dr. Chen Chin, otherwise known as Helena, she likes to be called. Uh, she's a senior research fellow in the heart failure pharmacology section of the Baker IDI Heart and Diabetes Institute. Helena, welcome to 3RRR.
3: Thank you, Dr. Chang. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's great to have you. you. Now, you work in an area... I mean, I'm getting chest pains just thinking about this, but this is um, you work in heart attacks in, yes. in that area. So before we get on to the specific work that you've actually done just recently, which is having amazing effect in, in the world of um, treating heart conditions, can you just give us a bit of a rundown? What's happening in the body when someone does have a heart attack? Is it, you know, very distinct to a stroke, a heart attack. What's going on?
3: So basically, when someone have a heart attack, their artery or the vessel in the heart is blocked. So there's no blood, there's no oxygen it goes to that part of the heart, and the heart muscle die. And that's mm-hmm. why someone have a heart attack.
1: And and what's I mean what's blocking this is plaques and build-ups, yeah.
3: Yes, so a lot of them are plaques building up and narrowing of the heart narrowing of the blood vessel and that causes Mm. Lack of oxygen and mm. lack of blood going to that part of the artery okay. and the heart vessel.
1: Now, now what, what I don't understand is this is something that always fascinates me. Is when the heart attack occurs because it's not like it just. I mean, did it just get blocked at that moment, or has it been a slow build up? Why all of a sudden does the heart do
0: this?
3: A lot of times, it's slow build up, okay. and then when something happens, and then the plaque can kind of detach from the blood vessel and blocks. So it happens to the to your to the brain. You have a stroke. If it happens with mm-hmm. the heart, you have a heart attack.
1: Okay, and and what sort of damage is happening to the heart when this occurs? I mean, what, what's changing in the heart? What what is the effect of the heart attack?
3: So the most severe phase, se- severe phase, is when the uh, vessel is blocked. There's no oxygen to the part of the heart. Mm-hmm. And the heart stops beating, and someone can die from it. Okay. Um, that's the most severe setting. If it's only partial uh, blood vessel is blocked, there's still some blood supply. And, but there's still reduced flow and oxygen to the heart. So the function of the heart is not as good.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now, knowing the body is, uh, I barely do, um, <laughs> you know, I'm a physics guy, uh, there's, there's, presumably all sorts of proteins and chemicals and stuff that's going nuts at this time. Yes. In, in the body. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that because it's not just, it's not a plumbing problem at this point, is it? Once you start no. having a heart attack. Yeah.
3: So when you have heart attack, when the, the vessel is blocked. There is, um, so because there's a lack of oxygen, so the heart goes into anaerobic metabolism. So it's like someone having exercise, a build up lactic acid, and then all the metabolites metabolism in the heart changes. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of calcium building up, there's a lot of reactive oxygen species, so free radicals building up as well. They causes a lot of damage. They causes inflammation, they causes the heart muscle to die and they also causes long term the whole scar formation of the heart. Okay. So when scar forms, the heart muscle cannot pump as well as before because it's not muscle anymore. Mm. So that's the long term consequence of those heart attack yeah
1: and, and so what, what do we do at the moment so someone you know presents at the emergency room or calls an ambulance or whatever what what What? what is the current procedure for dealing with someone who's having a heart attack
3: so when someone had a heart attack on the thing you try to dissolve the clot mm-hmm. using thrombolytic agents so when the blocks um dissolves away even though the heart muscle is um uh, even though the heart can start Having oxygen again, however, it actually causes a secondary damage, and that is called reperfusion injury. So when the oxygen goes in, so when you have no oxygen and all of a sudden you have oxygen to the heart and the muscle, hmm. and you actually causes a lot more damage long term, even right. though it can save someone's life.
1: Yeah, even though that's what you want yes. to happen. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes,
3: yes. So
0: heart attacks always always seem like surprises. Yep. Because of someone have, have, people have risks. But when it, when it happens is, you know, sometimes up to chance. Is there, what ways do we currently have to guess someone's risk for, for a heart attack? What can we measure in people and how can we do it better?
3: So there are ways that in clinical settings you can look at biochemical, um, markers in the blood. Let's say a particular protein goes up, then this person might have um, higher chance of having a heart attack mm. or cholesterol levels um, glucose levels in the in the body as well so there's a lot of things you can try to predict for mm-hmm. someone who, who's going to have a heart attack.
1: Mm-hmm. Helen, let's talk now about the work that you've been doing which is giving you quite a bit of fame actually. Thank you. are doing quite well <laughs> out of this. Um, wh- what's the new approach that you're looking at in terms of treating people with these problems?
3: So we are particularly interested in this uh, phenomena called bias signaling. So this is a kind of a new fashion in drug discovery field. So basically you can teach the proteins um, a new trick to um, how to engage with the activator of a particular protein. So you can actively only engage the beneficial pathways Mm -hmm. without touching the detrimental pathways. So potentially you can reduce the side effects of a drug in long term,
1: right, and and this is this is in the recovery phase, or so. At what point in the person's, you, you know, they they present with a heart attack, is it is it at that time that you would um, sort of use this sort of chemical?
3: So what we are looking at is at the point of um, giving a dissolving the blood clot. You can give this as an object, object treatment, mm-hmm. so reducing um, the damage caused by this. New introduction of oxygen mm. into the blood yes so
4: would, would that be also reducing the chance of that scar formation that you were talking about is that one of the
3: outcomes yes yes definitely so when you reduce the early stage of like kind of inflammation damage long term it also reduces the scar formation as well so we're also looking at um maybe giving this drug as a you know oral formulation then the patients can take on mm. daily basis mm. and reducing mm. scar formation long term.
1: Mm. Now this, this is, um, so far you've won the, the British Pharmacology Society's Outstanding Young Investigator Prize in conjunction with the Australasian Society for Clinical and Experimental Pharmacologists and Tec- Toxicologists. See that? <laughs> is, that, <laughs> <laughs> is there an acronym for that? <laughs> uh, the, the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand's prestigious Ralph Reader Prize in Basic Science, um, last year in August as well. So, uh, I mean, where is this at? at you know, in terms of the research at the moment, how far away from, are we from being able to use this in a clinical setting?
3: So, I was very fortunate to get those prices. We are in the process developing, um, this as a potential treatment for, mm-hmm. to use in clinical settings. We're probably five, six years away for phase one clinical trials. Yep. I think.
0: That's not too bad.
3: That's not too bad if everything yeah. goes. Goes
1: yeah. well. So stay healthy, folks, for five <laughs> or six years. Because, well, actually, a little bit more than that. But <laughs>
3: yeah. waiting for that. the new treatments
1: come. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be fantastic. Now, before we let you go, I just want um, to ask you about. Uh, you're also the vice president of the Australian China Scientists and Entrepreneurs Group. Um, And you're building this incubator for um, accelerating some of this research with University of Melbourne, RMIT, um, Suzu High Tech Park and the City of Melbourne. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Sure. So we... So this... Not, uh, so Australian China Scientist Entrepreneur or AKS was first founded in 2015 and last year we ran a lot of training programs to train uh, scientists to commercialize their ideas so what we saw was there's a lot of good technology in Australia but there's lack of translation whereas in China there's a lot of venture capital funds looking for really good projects even mm-hmm. early stage so we try to bridge the gap between good technology here and lots of basic interest in China. So this is what we're trying to do. So when uh, we took a, a group of 12 um, teams end of last year, went back to China, we went to five different business parks mm-hmm. in China. So they are kind of the innovation parks. So they do large-scale um, innovation and manufacturing of your scientific technology trans- transformation or commercialization. So they are quite interested for, uh, interested in what we are doing here. And they really saw the, um, you know, advance in technology in Australia. So one of the, um, high, high tech cities or business parks in, uh, uh, Jiangsu province, which is a sister state of uh, Victoria, are really interested coming mm. to Australia or Melbourne, especially to try to build this ecosystem with us. Sounds it's great. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. And didn't people have noticed there's like a billion people in this country. <laughs> <laughs> the one north of us, not, yeah. not here. Yeah. It feels like a billion sometimes when you're trying to get the tram in Melbourne, but no, <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any. Uh, um, Eleanor, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. This is really exciting work and it's great to hear a new approach for some of these things because I know we've been treating many of these things in the same way for, for quite a while. So for, for many of us out there who know we'll probably be uh, facing this at some stage in their lives, hopefully not for a while. Um, this is, this is great news. So congratulations and congratulations on the, um, the prizes and so forth. You've won for this excellent work.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank
1: you. Dr. Helma Chin is the Senior Research Officer in the Heart Failure Pharmacology section of the Baker IDI Heart and Diabetes Institute. We're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a few moments with some news from the week. Three, two, three. Uh, before we go too far, we're going to do a little bit of news and then uh we're going to take a break from station announcements and then we'll do a little bit more news, just split it up. So, Dr. Lauren, are you ready?
4: I am ready. Just, yeah, yeah I'm be, always ready. I'm know. just like, you know, like a cat, poised to go. <laughs> 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 I don't know why a cat, but... A big
1: cat or like a tabby? <laughs>
4: yeah, I think I'd be a tabby. Yeah. I'm more of a line in front of the fire kind of pair <laughs> as opposed to eat animals. <laughs> anyway. What do you got? I actually um, got a little bit, you know, on my high horse again the other day. Um, I went onto the New Scientist website and um, one of the the, the the title page of the New Scientist website had a, a big thing about, you know, woman has vision signed by, uh, saved by stem cells. Oh, and, yeah. you know, look, we've, we've talked about this a lot in the show and it comes up all the time. But I just wanted to really talk about where this is in terms of a treatment. So it's very exciting. So induced pluripotent stem cells we've spoken about a lot and it is really promising treatment and very, very exciting stuff. What this study actually looked at was whether or not you could implant uh, a layer of cells into the back of the eye from that are made from these um, pluripotent stem cells and whether that would be safe and stable over a a 12-month period. And that's what they showed. But the key thing really is that the patient's vision didn't change nor did they really expect it to. So at this point it was really more about what would happen when you put that that in and so it just always gets my back up a bit when you have the headlines and this is obviously not from the scientists this is from the media in general um you know talking about the fact that they've they've brought back vision and they've cured blindness uh but incredibly exciting potential i mean the fact that you can take cells from you know a different part of the of a patient's body Mm transform them back into the stem cell state and then turn them back into eye cells is so exciting we've got some amazing work going on in melbourne in this area as well but i think um you know just going to be a bit careful at making sure patients are aware the problem's not solved yet
1: yeah and and uh, we're seeing this more and more i mean there's a we've We've spoken about this with some guests actually Mm, on the show, and I think I may have mentioned that over the summer, whilst watching the cricket, I got very excited when I saw a particular hair replacement Mm -hmm, ad mm -hmm. um, that used stem cells, (laughs) and and I thought,
4: wow, problem solved.
1: People who have um, you know seen me in all my physical glory would know that (laughs) I you know I'm follicly a little bit challenged, Uh, (laughs) and it's getting worse the longer I've known Dr. Lauren.
5: (laughs) That there may be a correlation. There could be a (laughs) correlation,
1: (laughs) Um, but uh you know looking into the I just thought. I looked a bit at the the promotional material yeah. on this company's website, and yeah. I thought, "Oh, yeah, this looks really dodgy."
4: That's it. And look, it's yeah. a tricky one because it is incredibly exciting, and mm. you know, in the future, we will have treatments yeah, available, and, and there are for some conditions. Yeah, yeah. But you know, unfortunately, you still hear a lot of stories of people. I mean, there are. There was a recent story published in the Nature, a case study in Nature journal, um, a case study of two women that went blind because mm. they they went into a trial thinking it was a mm. cure. Um, it was not a good trial, and you yep. know, yeah, that was the outcome. And
1: there, there, there was a death in Sydney of a mm. woman who died of, uh, you know, because generally they, they suck the cells out of your butt, mm. life yep. That's it, exactly. And, and then <laughs> do some to. magic. Yeah and then treat your Alzheimer's, and, yeah. and the lady died of that, yeah. um, of, of the liposuction procedure, actually, up, up in Sydney. Yeah. So this is a oh. this is a game that's very dangerous.
4: And, and I think, I think yeah. yeah, and I think that the key thing is that there are amazing um, support groups, and mm. there's, there's even groups that are around, and we've had, you know, um, Megan Muncy on, for example, yep. Yep. Um, yep. Who, who has spoken about this. And, yes, there is good evidence and good yeah. information out there.
1: Yeah. And me- Megan know. and I have a rule of thumb, that is when you can use your Medicare card for it,
4: yeah. it's probably
1: more believable. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, so exactly until, until that happens, folks, it's in the tar- Card bin for yeah. me. Yeah. And,
4: and never pay, if you have to pay to participate in the clinical trial, oh. that also raises a lot of <laughs> bells yeah.
1: for me. A bit dodgy. Yeah. Dr. Jeff, what do you got for us?
0: Well, I, I have a similar story, something that's a very interesting mini breakthrough, as 99% of our results are. But um, well, <laughs> just, just they've, to they've, us, is it? Okay. <laughs> just to yeah. us, yeah. yes. Is, is that the Eureka, mo- the Eureka <laughs> moment. I've, you know. I use the term incremental, yeah. Incremental, <laughs> it's, as opposed to <laughs> experimental. <which Yeah. laughs> some of our well, the, the, what caught my <laughs> eye wasn't the original paper, but was the way that uh, that a science journal, <laughs> science is a popular science journal, science mag. Never heard of it. Anyway, <laughs> it said a blood test for autism. Mm. So what you really need to know is that is that first of all, autism is a devastating disorder. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and it's to do with uh, behavior and communication and it's thought to be purely something in the brain so a blood test for autism mm. is interesting mm. Mm. and so the reality is that there is no such thing as a blood test for autism but and it is extra cruel because parents of children with autism as parents of children with any disorder are always looking for something mm. that they can try and if some it's if they see a blood test for autism, they will phone up their GP and say, I want one of these. Mm-hmm. What right. is the reality is a group in the US who um, the breakthrough in this was they... There's some research that's saying, well, if you actually take blood from children with autism, there's actually... There's some metabolites, some chemicals in the blood that do differ mm-hmm. between children with autism and children without. But for any single metabolite, it can't classify a kid with autism versus not. The breakthrough was that they got a mathematician involved in the study and used some really nifty uh, statistical methods to basically say, well, the body isn't just an individual chemical, it's about interaction. So let's use, let's look at 20 of the most well-studied metabolites in blood and apply a mathematical equation to it and see if we can classify And they did, Mm -hmm. pretty strongly, one cohort of less than 100 children. Mm -hmm. and. So first of all, it's one study. Whenever you mm-hmm. read one study, it's mm-hmm. got to be repeated. It is not, definitely not a blood test for autism. Yeah. These kind of studies have to be repeated, try to be repeated around the world a number of times. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the phase one clinical trials and then 10 years time you may have a blood test for autism. Mm-hmm. So it is exciting in that mathematics and biology have got together for a mini-breakthrough, mm. but a bit reckless to sell it as a blood test for autism. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: I think the range of uh, different levels of autism that people have also is extensive, mm. so what that sure. means is, you know, it's pretty unclear. Yep. So mm-hmm. we're going to play a couple of very important announcements from the station. We'll be back in a moment. Catherine's got some more news for us. Three. triple. You are listening to Triple R, Dr. Catherine. Some news, please.
5: I do have some news. Some interesting news about social media use. In fact, uh, there was a study that's come out recently, published in the Journal of Management Information Systems, and it was Ooh, one of my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was looking at. Um, problematic use of social media and, and obviously a lot of people use so- social media but, but this study was particularly looking at problematic use and they define problematic use as people using social media that might have a consequence so for example uh, using Facebook or Twitter while driving or in a work meeting or something mm. that, that there will be a negative consequence of that use. <laughs> Some guilty
4: people in the room. Uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone yeah. looks up at the room.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and they, they the study in- included uh, American students who are undergraduate college level and it was about 400 students and it was a biased sample because there were students who were using Facebook so we need to take that into account a little bit but there were some interesting results regarding different brain chemical imbalances between people who have problematic use and, and those who didn't but the first thing I want to tell you is a little bit of some of the amazing facts of these students use of Facebook so 76, 76% of people were using Facebook in class which concerns me greatly wow. as, a, as a lecturer <laughs> <laughs> 40% were using Facebook while driving 63% were using Facebook while talking face to face with other people and 65% were using Facebook at work so these are these are high uses of Facebook across the board but the interesting finding of this study was that there was this difference in the, the brain um, functioning between people with problematic use and non-problematic use so there's two systems that the brain uses for clinical decision making, the first system is this automatic and reactive response to stimuli and the second system is a reflective reasoning response and there was an imbalance between those two systems Mm. so people with this significant problematic use had a very strong first system that was this this reactive response that they couldn't quite um Counter out the imbalance, so it just it, it's a little bit of information at the moment mm. to look at how we can we can um, change social media to make sure it's you know it's safe and yeah. and effective yeah. yeah
1: less of it I think is probably the mm. best
5: advice I
0: think we should be getting on board and teaching via Facebook if people are, yeah, are yeah. on Facebook in our lectures yeah, yeah well absolutely.
1: that's a, well, not <laughs> listening to you are they? <laughs> put up an interesting post uh, now just uh, for those pot smokers out there um, who believe that marijuana is the solution to everything do not worry, people, because Patrick Stewart, a.k.a. Captain Picard, is on the case. Mm-hmm. Um, he's come out uh, this week in support of... Um a major university um oxford university study they're about to launch this landmark ma- marijuana study um to determine the sort of the, the uses of it whether how, how valid they are in terms of cancer chronic pain inflammatory disease and so forth because a lot of people around the world swear by this stuff and yeah. mm-hmm. and patrick stewart's one of them he has pretty severe arthritis and and he went not on screen He's obviously <laughs> sucking yeah. back on a, yeah. uh, he, he, well he may use the edible version, I don't know, you know, mm. he, maybe they're in the cough lolly or something. Um, but this is interesting because this is one of these um, scenarios where this is non-addictive. Yeah, you know, but we we quite happily sell alcohol and mm. cigarettes like they're going uh, going out for free, although they're very expensive mm. and the health impacts of those are extraordinary. Whereas this is something that most people believe is actually not a mm-hmm. huge problem for society at all. In fact, a major help and is being used more and more by many people. So watch this space. And mm. if you know something lists, I think on the stock market that sells medical marijuana or produces it mm-hmm. in Australia, which will happen, uh, will. will happen. Um, I'll be getting on board. I tell you. Mm. In terms of buying shares.
0: Problem is medical, <laughs> medical marijuana versus smoking marijuana. There is a big difference. Oh, there's that.
1: a big difference in quality and, it, yeah. and, and so forth. And the just making rotting, sure. Yeah, yeah, the you smoking gotta, type. You've you got to be careful. So, but, um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this Oxford study. So. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Thank you very much, Dr. Lauren. Pleasure. Good to have you in. Dr. Jeff, good to see you. Pleasure as always. And Dr. Catherine. Thank you very to see much. You. Um we will be back again next week, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in to Triple R. Remember, science is everywhere, and hang in now for the team from Edith. They're going to be cooking up a storm. As usual, I'm Doctor Shane. Have a great Sunday.
0: This has been a podcast from Free Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne.